whenever two items are placed side by side, the, the contrast between them stands out so much, doesn't it? That's what happens, so much so that at times we maybe even try and avoid or try and stay clear of certain people or items in order to avoid comparison. So that for me, there are all kinds of ways in which that can happen. One way is with my car. Um, at this time of the year, driving about, and let's face it, it doesn't take long to be driving around these roads. They're guttery roads before your car is absolutely bogging. And if I've got a wedding or a funeral coming up, I always try and get into Balamina and get the car washed, but it doesn't always happen. And you can be absolutely sure that the time when I run out of time to do that and I leave myself running behind schedule, and so I drive on down here to the church or another church and I park the car and it's absolutely caked in mud, there will be a beautiful, gleaming, shiny car, freshly validated, parked right alongside me with gleaming alloys, and my car looks so awful. Or for me also, it's when I'm out walking the dog, and I've got all of my dog walking gear on, most of it, which stays out in the back hall, and I get back, and Belle-Anne says, we don't have any bread, or we need to get some milk, and I think, well, really, I should go up and get changed and then go over to super value, but no, on this occasion, I'll just go on across. And that is the occasion when I walk in in my muddy boots and my 20-year-old coat when inevitably the Reverend McGowan and Mrs. McGowan are coming out, and he's kind of dressed like the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I, I look like Wurzel Gummidge, and it's not a good moment when I, I bump into them and I'm, oh, I'm just over to get some milk. I was out with the dog, and all the excuses are made. Or when I think back to the first home that we had when we were married, we, we lived in a, a small semi-detached house in Newton Abbey, and it had this kind of mock Tudor front to it, which needed to be painted to leave it looking any way right. And whenever the, the house that was attached, the, the guy came out and painted it a beautiful new shade of white, then your house just looked so bad in comparison as the two stood side by side. Well, here in God's Word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we get to see side by side two people who were part of the early church, and the contrast between them could not be greater. In fact, seeing them side by side emphasizes how much of a good example one of them is and how much of a warning the other provides. So, I would invite you to turn with me again in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and tonight for a while we're looking at verses 6 to 10. And as we look at these verses together tonight, I'm going to, to say something that is very obvious, and I'm not seeking to insult your intelligence in any way, but I think it's good just from time to time to point this out. And it's simply to say this, that the Bible as we read it, we must remember that when the Bible was being written, when each person, the Apostle Paul, for example, here, was writing the Bible under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were not putting in those numbers as they went along, the big numbers and the small numbers, the chapters and the verses. That was not the way in which God's Word 
was first constructed. It was something that was added much later on for ease of use and for helping people like us to study God's Word either individually or together. Indeed, nor are the headings that appear in our modern versions of the Bible something that originally came. It wasn't, and we must try and think our way into the way in which Paul would have um, sat down and wrote or dictated a letter like this. He didn't have headings in mind. So, here, for example, the flow of what we are looking at is broken up in the New International Version by the addition of that heading, Personal Remarks. And those headings can be really useful when we're trying to, to find our way around God's Word and become more familiar with the Scriptures. There's a lot of advantages in having them, but they can also be, in one sense, unhelpful, even misleading. So, I don't want you to imagine that Paul had these divisions of subject in mind when he first wrote this letter to Timothy. Let's take that heading, whatever way it's described and wherever it's positioned in your version of the Bible, let's take that heading out of the equation. Let's read this in the way that it was originally written with a, a continuous flow of thought in the way that you would sit down and compose an email or write a letter to someone. And when you do that, you're then able to see this huge contrast between these two people who appear side by side. And the people that we're, we're looking at, the people that we're thinking about tonight are Paul, that is the Apostle Paul, who is the writer of this letter, this book of the Bible, and then the lesser-known Demas, who was a co-worker of Paul's in gospel ministry. And when we look at them side by side, we get to see the two very different directions that they go in after making a commitment to Christ. So, let's dive into the passage and think about these two men side by side. First of all, looking for a moment at Paul himself and what he tells us here in this particular passage. And I think there are two things that are helpful to understand about this letter. Remember that we have spent um, over the past year a lot of time in 1 Timothy. This is, if you like, the sequel. It is the second letter written to Timothy that we have in Scripture. And two things to say about this particular letter. The first is that of all of the letters of Paul that we have in the New Testament, this is the final one, chronologically speaking. So, it was a letter that was written by Paul, we reckon, in around the year 67. It was written from prison in Rome just before his execution. And while his execution is not recorded in Scripture, we are pretty sure that Paul was executed. He was martyred for his faith in the Lord Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing, and we've thought a lot about this in our last series on 1 Timothy, is the nature of this relationship that exists between Paul and the guy that he's writing to here, Timothy. Remember that Timothy was his closest friend and, and co-worker in the gospel. And elsewhere, Paul writes about Timothy as being like a son in the faith. 
there is that closeness of relationship between these two men. And for that reason, we can say of this letter, as we said of 1 Timothy, that what we're reading here is both prophetic and personal. And what I mean by that is, this is prophetic. This is God's Word to us, because what we are receiving here was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. And therefore, it is not only a message to Timothy, it is a word to us, and it is incredibly useful to us. But alongside that, we also remember that this was a personal letter, and it really reveals to us Paul's heart. Like any final words, remember these are the final words that Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, and like any final words, these are revealing the things that are most important to Paul. In fact, given that this is Paul's final letter to someone who was a trusted and a much-loved friend, we find Paul in a reflective mood. He's looking back over his incredible life as a disciple of Jesus, and he knows that his time in this world is coming to its end. The way he describes it is like this in verse 6, if you look at that verse again. He says, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. And the picture that he uses there, that picture of a drink offering, a drink offering was something that was poured out as a sacrifice to the Lord at the altar. It would have been wine that was poured onto the altar, and as it burnt off, it would have given this pleasing aroma, this pleasing smell. It would have been pleasing to the Lord. And it says a lot about the way in which Paul viewed his life, that for him, his was a life of sacrifice. He was offering himself to God, that his aim was always to please the Lord. And now that life was approaching its end. And look at what Paul is able to say about that life of discipleship. It's a well-known verse, verse 7. And he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And the way in which he looks at the Christian life is incredibly instructive. Because these are descriptions of the Christian life that, that help us to better understand it, and then to begin to look at our own life to assess where we are at with the Lord. What is it that he says? Let's look at each part individually. He says, I have fought the good fight. And elsewhere in his writings in the New Testament, Paul, you talked about warfare. He had the image of war in mind. For example, in Ephesians 6, he talks about putting on the full armor of God, but that's not actually the image that he has in mind here. When he talks about a fight, it's not a battle, but he's actually talking about a sporting contest. The image that he has in mind is a, a wrestling match, or we might think more of a boxing match. And what he's really saying is this, the Christian life involves struggle. If you imagine two people wrestling, and not the kind of, you know, fake, 
you know, wrestling that you see on TV these days, but that kind of more Olympic-type wrestling, well, that is an immense struggle. And Paul is putting it as clearly as he can, the Christian life, the life of discipleship is a struggle. And I reckon that's something that we neither expect or want to hear. Because for us, well, we expect the Christian life to be easy, not a struggle. But people, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you follow Him, know this, the struggle is real. The struggle is real internally because we are told in the Scriptures that when we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when there is a work of the Spirit established within us, we become a new creation in Christ. And that new nature is constantly struggling with our old sinful nature, and we at times are immensely aware of that struggle going on within us. But the struggle is also external as well, because as believers in Christ, we share in Christ's rejection, and it's something that He told us to expect. The Lord was always truthful about that. For example, if you look at John chapter 15, verse 18, John 15, 18, Jesus says to His disciples, if the world hates you, understand it hated me first. And if we face any kind of persecution, if we face any kind of opposition, understand that that is where it comes from. That is why we receive this kind of pushback, not because of us, but because of the one that we trust in, Jesus. And yes, walking with Jesus does bring joy and peace and help to us in our lives, but the Lord Jesus Himself wanted His disciples to be sure that there is a real cost of following Him. And Paul knew that as he sat in prison awaiting execution. But by and large, we have forgotten this. For us, the expectation is that the Christian life will be one of comfort, it will be one of ease, it will be one of little or no commitment. But Paul said of his experience of discipleship, of his Christian life, I have fought the good fight. And then he continues, I have finished the race. And when Paul says that, be sure of this, he would have had a race over a distance in mind. And we need to know that the Christian life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And that's a picture that an increasing number of us can identify with. In this age of park runs and 10Ks and apps like Strava, many of us know a bit more about running and about taking part in a race. And it is such a helpful picture because we keep in mind that a race has a starting and a finishing point. You need to make it to the start line in a race. And the Christian life has a starting point. We know that because Jesus 
said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And we understand that that is a work of God's Holy Spirit, that to find this new life in Christ, there needs to be a work of God's sovereign grace within us by His Spirit. So, we need to start in the Christian life, but then you need to keep on to the finish. And I think this is the part of the Christian life that many people who profess faith in Christ simply forget, that for many people their Christian faith is an insurance policy rather than being looked upon as a life of discipleship. And it's only by God's grace that we can continue. In fact, God has given us what we describe as the means of grace to help us to continue in this race. So, you think about those means of grace beginning with His Holy Spirit, with the church being in fellowship together, His Word and prayer. Do you use them? Are they they part of your life? Paul says, I have fought the fight, I finished the race, and then he says, I have kept the faith. And really, the first two pictures of a fight and a race are ways of emphasizing this central point, that by God's grace, Paul has been able to keep the faith. Yes, he may be in prison. Yes, he may be facing execution. He knew the cost of discipleship, but he still trusted the Lord and was keeping on with Him. So, what about you? How's your life looking as we begin 2024? Well, at the start, I said about how much you get to see the contrast when two things or two people are set side by side. So, let's move on to Demas because after Paul reflects on his life as a follower of Jesus, he then finishes his letter to Timothy with some instructions and greetings. In verse 9, you get to see his need of the support of other Christians. He says to Timothy, and this is from the heart, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. He's saying, I really need your help. And he then explains the main reason why he needs the support and the company of another believer. It's because of what we read in verse 10. He continues, for Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So, what had happened to this guy Demas? Well, we do not know that much about Demas. There are three mentions of him in the New Testament, very brief mentions. And what we discover when we look at those mentions of Demas is that he was a gospel worker. He was a co-worker in gospel ministry along with Paul. And if we look at those mentions of Demas chronologically, the second one comes in Colossians chapter 4. In fact, look in your Bibles, please, at Colossians 4, when he's mentioned at the end of a list of workers. He's mentioned in verse 14, but let's read together from verse 10, because 
I think there's something to, to note in this. And Paul, writing to the Colossians, says in chapter 4, verse 10, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who has called justice, also sends greetings, and he then says of them, these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So, take approval. Then verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. So, again, take. And then this, this warm greeting, our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Now, one of the first things that I learned when I was at Union College, training to be a minister, studying theology, was the danger of looking at Scripture and reading into it something that is not actually there. We have to be so careful about that, and we should not readily draw conclusions from what is not said. But having said that, there is something that seems kind of strange here. The positive things are said about all of these other people, and then Demas is simply mentioned by name, so that if we could kind of think about this in this way, that if someone came to visit this church and had never been to Connor before, and if they came in for tea afterwards, or if you went, or, or if someone came to visit you and they didn't know anything about Connor, and, and, and if you sat down and you said to them, you know, in terms of my time here in Connor, Mr. Preston, he, he was such a good Bible teacher. It was great to hear him teach God's Word. And then Richard, he was such a, a faithful man of God. He did so much in Connor. And then we had those assistants, Michael and Matthew, really godly fellows. And now Philip Thompson is our minister, full stop. Well, if you listen to that, you may be inclined to wonder, what's the story with the last guy? And so, we're left wondering about Demas. Was there something amiss? We simply don't know. But then it all becomes clear in this final reference to him here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul gives us the full story about Demas, saying of him, because he loved this world, he has deserted me. And we need to be absolutely clear that deserting Paul, deserting gospel ministry, was an indication of his desertion of the Lord himself. What happened to Demas? We can only speculate. But was it that he listened to the world more than he listened to the Word? What a danger that is. And Demas may have later come back to the Lord and come back to the work. I hope that's the case, that like the, the prodigal returning to his father's business, 
to His loving arms that that was the case. Certainly, God is gracious, and the grace that, that first pardoned us can bring us back into a renewed relationship with Him again. That is hope, maybe, for some people here tonight, as it's been hope for me in my life. But what a warning Demas gives us. Think about it. Involved in gospel ministry, involved in the ministry team of the Apostle Paul, and yet he seems to have ended up spiritually nowhere, deserting the mission and the ministry of the gospel. And so, for us tonight, as we come towards the end, as these two people appear side by side, what a contrast we see. And, and who do you resemble? Are you keeping on? Or are you beginning to drift? Are you valuing more of what the world can offer than what the Lord has given you? But as we come towards the end, here's the real danger of a sermon like this. And you may think it's kind of counterproductive for a, a preacher to point out the danger of a sermon, but this is a real danger. Let's be careful. The danger is that as we come to this passage, as we view these two guys side by side, it can become all about us. So that for you, as you make your response to this tonight, it would be very easy for your response to be, well, you know what? Having read this, having listened to Philip preach about this, I must run harder. I must fight harder. I must believe better. I must be more like Paul and not be like Demas. And of course, there is an example to follow, and there is one to avoid. But you know what this shows us most of all is our urgent need of God's grace. That's where this passage, that's where this side-by-side -side study should bring us to. It should bring us to the grace of our God. And you know that I often quote Paul Tripp, and I often quote specifically from his devotional book, New Morning Mercies. And one of the things, if you've taken my advice or you've taken my recommendation and used that book, one of the things that could be potentially frustrating is that this guy, Paul Tripp, seems to repeat himself so that you get to maybe April the 7th, and you think, hang on, I've read that. Did he not say that back in February? Or when you get to September, did he not say that about four times over the last number of months? That's because he did. That's because he keeps reminding us day by day of the things of central gospel importance. And one of his recurring quotes is this, that you are as much in need of God's grace today as the are you first believed. We don't tend to think of the administration of God's grace in that way, but think about that again and be challenged by that. You are as much in need of God's grace tonight as the are you first believed. And we can only imagine what life must have been like for Demas after he walked away from Paul 
and walked away from the Lord. But we do know how it was for, for Paul and what he was eager to receive. This is how he finishes off his look at his own life. He says to his dear friend Timothy, Timothy, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And just before you're inclined to think of Paul, who does he think he is? Talk about big ideas about yourself. Paul includes there, this is not a prize for me. It is a prize for all of us who long for Christ's appearing, who look to Him and trust in Him. And the whole thing about Paul's ministry, the whole thing about his understanding of salvation, as summarized in Ephesians chapter 2, is that he knew the score. He says it twice in that passage in Ephesians 2. It is by grace you are saved. So he knew that this crown, he knew that this amazing award that he would receive was not because of him, but it was because of Jesus. The righteousness is not a righteousness that Paul had managed to live out during his life, but a righteousness that he received from Christ. And that's the truth for you as well if you're a believer in Jesus. That's how it is for all who trust in Him and keep on trusting Him. That Jesus put on a crown of thorns and He died a criminal's death so that you can receive a crown of righteousness from His Father. Side by side, we get to see the contrast between these two men who started out in the race, who looked to Jesus, but then they went in such different directions. What about you? What do you cherish most? What do you look forward to most? Is it all the stuff that this world offers and tells you is of value but actually amounts to nothing? Or is it something of eternal value and purpose? A right relationship with God through His Son that assures you of an amazing future. Amen. We're going to